you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. beginning in verse 12. And so turn your attention to the reading of God's holy word. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, Because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and we ask that you would strengthen us, that you would guide and direct us in in all things. Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit to proclaim this word clearly, truthfully, Lord, with power from you. And if there's anything that should not be said, that you would remove it, or may it fall on deaf ears, but Lord, I pray that you would allow our hearts and our ears to hear, and that you would work in us by your Spirit in all of us to bring about conformity to your image, as well as even just assurance in your love for us as your children. So we pray all these things for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Well, if you're at all familiar with the world of fitness, um, lately HIIT workouts have been uh, pretty much at the forefront and becoming more and more popular. The acronym stands for High Intensity Interval Training. And the idea is that you go through periods of high exertion followed by a period of recovery as well. And it's meant to to build muscle mass and, and burn calories now, the interesting thing is, is, I'm not an expert at this at all, but I remember doing stuff that were basically hit workouts in high school track practice. As we ran 100, walked 100, ran 2, walked 2, ran 3, walked 3, and on and on, up to 600, and then back down the ladder. By the end of it, we were exhausted, and we were ready for the practice to be done. But studies today have shown even more on this approach that it really does improve fitness and cardio health and cholesterol profiles and even insulin sensitivity. Further, one article said this. It said, HIT also reduces fat, both abdominal and the deep visceral kind that engulfs your inner organs while uh, retaining or maintaining muscle mass or in less active individuals increasing it. Similarly, HIT um, beats continuous moderate intensity exercise when it comes to releasing brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which we all know, right, is a protein that protects nerve cells. This promotes plasticity, the forming of new connection which aids learning and memory and may even help regulate eating, drinking, and body weight. That all sounds really good to me. I'd, I'd like the plasticity, neuroplasticity to continue. And really much of the appeal of, of HIT is the value to your health. But it also, one of the things that I, that I think that it takes into account is that you cannot go full tilt forever in a workout. 
You just can't keep going at full force in it. You need recovery. That's integral to it. It, it is an intense workout. It's generally shorter than a lot of other workouts, but it's intense, and recovery is built in. And you may be wondering why I'm giving fitness advice right now. The reality is, is I'm not, but this idea reminds me, I know it might sound crazy, but it reminds me of what John is doing in his letter. Because he hit the ground running with intensity to start off. He hit it hard. He let them know what they need to do. And if you sin, and if anyone says this, anyone says this, and, and, and making sure that our, our profession lines up with what we do and say and believe. And, and now he moves into a period of recovery. He knows that there needs to be some consolation along with the, the, the intensity that's there. He's addressed some pretty intense subjects at a high level. And so in our section today, at least the beginning section, he backs off from that intensity. He gives us kind of a chance to breathe, to catch our breath, some encouragement, but then he'll jump right back into it. It's just like that kind of a workout. So he gives us, he's, he's hit it hard, he gives us a little bit of recovery, and then he hits right back into it. And this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at both encouragement and exhortation. Simple outline, encouragement and exhortation. And my hope is that you'll see how much the exhortation that comes is actually fueled, and everything that he says is fueled in many ways by what he says in the encouragement and how that helps with our recovery. So look again at verses 12 through uh, 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Of course, what you see right away in this section is repetition, right? Each of these six statements begins with a form of I write. You see some in, in the present tense and then what's also known as the aorist or a kind of a, a past tense. Along with that, you also see this repetition of those addressed, right? You see children, young men, fathers, and young men. Children, fathers, and young men. Now, why? Why all this repetition? One thing, remember, this was an oral culture. It was an oral culture. Though this letter was written, it wasn't copied for everyone. Not everyone had a copy of it. Very few did. There was probably, there was just one. Maybe it was copied by one and then passed on elsewhere. But John is, is making this section particularly memorable by the repetition. It's a rhetorical device that he's using. You know, you can think about it almost like a nursery rhyme or uh, a song. There's repetition in both of those, and they teach, they communicate something. The person who wrote it is seeking to communicate, and they do so through repetition. It's a rhetorical device and to, to get that point across to make it easily remembered. And so that's what John is doing. He's, he's working to make it easily remembered. Now, the question then is, what is he making easy to remember? What's being communicated by this repetition? Well, as I said earlier, I think it's reassurance. I think it's consolation. I think it's good news. Here's a beautiful reminder of who these readers are in Christ, 
of what's true of them. This is a reminder of of what is of absolute importance for them to remember that thing which fuels their lives forward. And yet we still have another question, though, with that, is who is John addressing? Is he literally writing to little kids and fathers and young men? What does he mean by that? And honestly, there's, there's more ink spilt over who the recipients of this are in co- commentaries than you care to know, and so I'm just going to give you what I've come to decide on this, and, and we can talk about it if you want to talk about it more. But I believe John is addressing the entire church in these. He uses the phrase little children multiple times in the letter anyways to, to write to the, to the whole church. And um, then I think he's writing, in, in a sense, to two general groups with the fathers and young men. And though he addresses young men and fathers in this language, it is applicable to the entirety of the church. And I think this makes the best sense of the structure of, and of John's approach and argument in this letter. So then, what is communicated by this approach? I believe he sets forth six basic ideas. Yet there's, there's one last thing that, that, that I want to look at before looking into these, and that's the use of a Greek word. Okay, I don't bring out Greek often, but it's the Greek word hati, okay? And it's translated because in probably all of your translations that you're, you're holding. Um, and so, um, nearly every translation says it that way, and it gives it this, this causal sense of the word. Um, he, he'd be writing to them because these things are true in their life. That's, that's, that's the impetus. That's what propelled him to write, very similar to 1 John 2, 21, where he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He's reminding them of these truths, in a sense, and reminding them that this is why he writes. This is why he's written. This is an assurance the whole way. It's the foundation of what will follow. But this word could also be translated with that. And it just brings a slightly different meaning. It's a declarative statement. This would be affirmation that these things are true in them, that they have conquered, that they know the Father, that their sins are forgiven. It's just reminding them in that sense again, just know this, your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. It's not because of, although they're very related. They're very related. I, I do think we could go either way, and I wanted to bring out both because I think it kind of has the sense of both in it. It's not just one or the other. So I wanted to kind of give that, that full sense, the full nuance of what this talks about, because we do need to hear both emphases. No, now, no matter all, whichever way you fall or taking both, it's encouragement. Again, it's consolation. And the first, points he, the first point he writes is, little children... I write to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, he's already addressed this in the letter, hasn't he? He's already addressed this in chapter 1 and in part of chapter 2. We have forgiveness of sins, and that forgiveness of sins is not because of our character or our reputation or our works, anything that we've done, but it's because of Christ. It's for his name's sake because of the one who bears the name Savior and pleads his life and his death and his righteousness on our behalf as our advocate before the Father, as it says in 2.2. He is the one who pleads for us. We are fully and completely forgiven our sins, our rebellion, our transgression because of him. 
for the sake of His name, not for the sake of our works, but for the sake of who we are, but for the sake of Christ. Well, then he writes to fathers, because you know Him who was from the beginning. Now, if you notice as, as you read through this, he says the exact same thing to fathers, except for changing the tense of I write. He writes the same exact thing. And if you look at 1-1, this is clearly in reference to knowing Jesus, knowing Him who is from the beginning, the, the one who is from eternity past. And, and I don't think John is addressing here just bare knowledge, that I just, you know, uh, you know I, I know Michael Jordan, but I, I don't know Michael Jordan. Okay, it's, it's hard with the, that English word somewhat. It's, I know who he is, but I don't know him. I don't have a relationship with him. He's talking about the latter, the, the having a relationship. You, have, you know him. And I would propose also that he's addressing older in general here because their responsibility is to pass on that knowledge to the next generations. He writes to them because they know him who's from the beginning Next, I want to go back to what he writes to children. We'll get to young men in a moment. He says, children, because you know the Father, because you know the Father, and this is obviously similar to knowing Him who is from the beginning, but he specifically says, because you know the Father. And it's, it was a revolutionary thing to turn and call God our Father. To pray, as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. He's wanting them to remember their adoption, that they have been brought into the family of God. God, our Father, He he is our Father. He loves His children. He protects us and guides and cares for us. J.I. Packer, a great theologian, wrote this. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father. He pushes that point, but it's saying we have to understand that we are adopted children that He is our Father. Because we were once children of wrath by nature. But through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and His work in us, we are now children of God. Those who believe in His name, born not by the will of man, nor by blood, but by the will of God. We're His. And that is something to, to cherish and relish and that should, should lead us to worship. Finally, we're going to look at these last three points in what he wrote to young men because he, he repeats one of them. Uh, he mentions one and then he repeats it at the end, at, at the last verse. So he says, to, he writes to young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, naturally, when you think of young men, you think of them as strong. They're strong, they're athletes, they, they, they perform well, but how are they strong? What kind of strength is John referring to? I think it's what Paul writes in Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. Not in their own physical strength, but they are strengthened in the Lord. They're strong in his might. And that that strength is intricately connected with abiding in the word of God. With the Word of God abiding in us. This is how we are strengthened. It's how we battle a world full of lies. We do so by abiding in the Word of God, by knowing it well, believing it, holding it fast. That's why a ministry like what Greg just mentioned is so important. To be able to teach the Word of God accurately to those who are going to teach it to others so that the Word of God can strengthen saints throughout the world. You know, we need to let the Word of God be our guide, our control, to be the director of our hearts and our thoughts. And He, listen, He's commending them for this. You know, if you take it as, I write to you that, I write to you, this is true in you. You're strong, and the Word of God abides in you. And He's letting them know further that they have overcome the evil one. John emphasizes this in one of his other writings in the book of Revelation. Overcoming is central to that book, this whole idea of the, the, be the overcomers. The overcoming in a spiritual manner, even if you are overcome physically, you overcome spiritually. Greg Beale, uh, in a commentary on the New Testament, wrote this. He said, this behavior of overcoming is modeled after Christ who overcomes the devil and the world at the cross while being physically overcome. The point is that the younger members and the congregation as a whole, if they persevere in their love for one another and embrace of the gospel, will continue to overcome the devil and the world. You know, all he's written about love and and being in the light. If we continue in that, you will continue to overcome because Jesus told us, take heart, I have overcome the world. We remain in Him. We will overcome. And we have overcome. So John has taken time here to encourage his readers because he's about to get intense again. He's about to ratchet it up with an imperative following upon the heels of these great truths. So look down at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the command is pretty simple, isn't it? Do not love the world or the things in the world. This is the first of ten imperatives in this letter. So what is he commanding? He's commanding, don't love. Now, what does he mean here by don't love the world? Because, unless I'm wrong, which I'm not, um, God loved the world, okay? And actually, I'm going to get to that in a a minute here again. But when he's saying don't love, love, this idea of love, love is setting your affection on something to the neglect of something else. When you get married, you take a vow. The vow was, went something like this, to love and cherish in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, 
and forsaking all others, keep myself only unto you for so long as we both shall live. To forsake all others is to forsake loving them in that same manner, to turn your attention to your spouse and your spouse alone in that way. There is a love reserved for your spouse. You cannot love your spouse and another in the same exact way. They're mutually exclusive, just as John tells us that the love of the world and the love of the Father are mutually exclusive. John Stott wrote, If we are engrossed in the outlook and pursuits of the world which rejects Christ, it is evident that we have no love of the Father. If we're engrossed, if we're loving that. So so then, what is this world and why can't we love it? Because here's what I was getting to a minute ago. God loved the world, didn't he? Doesn't he? He sent his only son into the world to save sinners. So either in in this context, John and, and what he's saying, world has a slightly different emphasis here which would be along the lines of it being uh, the, the world is more the, the general way of life that has come about because of the fall and is under the power of the evil one. It's the world system set up against God. Or, and possibly as well, the idea of love could have a different emphasis. You know, one from God is a love of redemption. He's looking to redeem out of the world. The other love that John is saying do not do is this selfish love of participation, a longing to participate in what is in rebellion against God. These aspects of the world are not in the realm of the light of God. They are darkness. Their values and ways are antithetical to God's. And you can see that those are the tracks I think that John is running on here, both of these tracks, as he gives a threefold grid to look at this command, do not love the world or the things in the world, with the prohibition, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. Now, when I hear those, no matter when or what context I hear those, my mind goes back to a song I heard back in late high school, early college from a band called the 77s. Some of you may know the 77s. If you don't, I'm sorry, you should. But um, they have a song called The Lust, the Flesh, the Eyes, and the Pride of Life. And it is a genius song. And probably about three and a half minutes, they pack in beautiful truths. And so for the desires of the flesh, they have these lyrics. So listen, and some of it, okay, this is late 80s, so just understand that's how the lyrics were. It says, well, I feel like I have to feel something good all of the time. With most of life, I cannot deal, but a good feeling I can feel even though it may not be real And if a person, place, or thing can deliver, I will quiver with delight. But will it last me for all time or just one more lonely night? The desires of the flesh, those things that that in in general pertain merely to this life, these desires, they're short-sighted at best. It's when we allow our physical wants and desires to drive us. The old NIV 84 actually translates this as the cravings of sinful man. The cravings of sinful man. It's to live life dominated by our senses. Gluttony, laziness, passions, a a consistent seeking to gratify our desires, the desires of our flesh, the lust of the flesh, completely disregard the commandments of God, His judgments, His standards, 
And quite often, even his very existence, they suppress the truth of God in their rebellion. They seek to eradicate or change all of the truths of God in so many ways to, to um, put them down under and below the desires, that the desires are first and foremost. And, you know, these desires are, are natural, but they're distorted by our sinful nature. And the drive to satisfy them without any reference to God, without thanksgiving, without the proper context is wrong. And, you know, I don't want to focus on a, on a sexual arena, but it is in the forefront of the news and in our lives. Pornography, the entertainment industry, you know, hopefully, well, just consider the Grammys not long ago and some of the performances there. It says enough. Don't go look it up if you didn't see it. Just don't. But just know that it's, it's horrific. The whole LGBTQ agenda. Here are desires of the flesh where people are letting the desires of the flesh rule and define their lives. It's become what's most important about them. But also hear, me, hear this. Not everything is so out there and so blatant in the desires of the flesh. It could be just as much your desire to rest and relax to the detriment of loving and serving others and God. Maybe saying, I've done my time. I've given what I need to. Or you come home from work and you're like, it's been a long day. I just want to be by myself and go nowhere and do nothing. And it could hurt your family. It could hurt your spouse. Your desire for immediate comfort rather than service. Your desire to simply gratify your own wants. And I'm going to assume that if we're honest, we all fight against those desires. At least I hope we are fighting against them. Don't give in to them. We're repenting of them because fulfilling these desires is contrary to the light of God. And fulfilling those desires, we're fulfilling something that is fleeting, that will not last. That's what John writes in verse 17. He says, The world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In, um, in, in 1 John 2.8, he had already spoken of the, the darkness passing away because the true light of Jesus. It's a similar idea. It's that the world's days are numbered. You know, whatever is antithetical to God and His grace is passing away. It's doomed. Folks, there is no future in worldliness. Actually, heard R.C. Sproul on the way in this morning. He was saying, you know, there's this whole thing about being on the right side of history. He's like, I'd rather be on the right side of eternity. Are we pursuing the things that are eternal? Do we have the right perspective? And those who do the will of God abide forever. It's not that their works merit salvation, but by doing the will of God, they show forth their salvation. They show that they are walking in the light. Their, their confession lines up with their actions. The desires of the flesh. And then John moves to the desires of the eyes, and I'm going to go back to the 77s because I think what they say about this is, is helpful. At least it, I'm singing it in my head, probably, anyway, so I'll, I'll just share it. He says, well, I see something, and I want it right now, no questions asked. Don't worry how much it costs me now or later. I want it. I want it, baby, and I want it now. 
I'll go to any length, sacrifice all that I already have and all that I might get just to get something more that I don't need, and Lord, please don't tell me what for. Here we move more from being uh, temptations within, the desires of the flesh, to the desires of the eyes, so those things that are without, those things that entice us from the outside. Again, it's short-sighted desire. It's what we see with our eyes. We're, we're captivated and captured by the outward ordeal of things without ever considering whether they have any real or lasting value. Or maybe we've considered it and we just don't care because you want that fleeting moment of pleasure or whatever it is. Interesting thing is John calls this the desire of the eyes. In reality, it's blindness. It's blindness to the truth and to the light of God, to what really matters. Another commentator summed this up well. He said, of our whole body, these two one-inch wide openings are the parts most susceptible to sin. The devil wants our eyeballs wide open to all that is worldly on this terrestrial ball. He wants us to covet all that is opposed to God, whether it is ungodly status, success, pursuits, possessions, or people, the lustful look, the greedy gaze, and the being dressed to impress or seduced or tempt are three of 3,000 sins that fall under this expansive root vice. We would do well to remember and to memorize Psalm 101, verses 3 and 4. Even just the first part of, the ver- first part of verse 3. I will, set before my, uh, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Just the psalmist the resolution there, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. One that tells me that you have to know this well enough, you have to know God's Word well enough to know what is worth something and what is worth less. To have the wisdom and the discernment to know that. And then to have the resolve and the power by the Spirit of God being strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might to not put before your eyes that which is worthless. Well, then comes the last of the triad, the pride of life, and the last stanza from the 77s. And I love when folks look right at me and what I'm doing or have done and lay it on about how groovy I am and that I'm looking grand. And every single word makes me think, I'll live forever, never knowing that they probably won't remember what they said tomorrow, tomorrow I could be dead. The pride of life, the attitude of someone who refuses to rely on God while boasting in what they have, and it's a roller coaster. You boast in your own possessions and ability, and then you find somebody else who has more possessions and more ability. So then you look for that person who has less, (laughs) and then you run into somebody, and it's just up and down. And it's utter self-dependence and self-glorification. It's pride in your own life, pride in your own accomplishments. It's, it's pride in, in all of that and not pride in the life that is found in Jesus. Jeremiah 9, 
Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. All these things we have a tendency to boast in. They're transient. They will pass away. They're not eternal. Our jobs, our finances, our strength, our wisdom, that's not where our hope is to rest. Because they will all fail us. And these three ideas, this, this triad that John has given, I think they're addressed well by one who wrote this. You cannot have God as your spouse and still have the world as your mistress. You cannot have God as your spouse and still have the world as your mistress, forsaking all others. You cannot have an intimate relationship with both God and, 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 and the world. You, God and the world cannot be in a tie. You cannot serve two masters. And I think the chorus that I pass by each time and reading that 77's lyrics helps. The lust, the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life drain the life right out of me. They drain the life out of us. This is why John reminds his readers of what's true of what the life really is, right? Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know him who is from the beginning. You know the Father because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We have to know the life, the hope, the truth that we have eternally in Christ. Think of what Jesus communicated in Mark 8, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is flat out saying there the same, don't love the world or the things in the world. What will it gain you if you gain the whole world? But it drains the life right out of you, and you forfeited your soul. Folks, let's not let love of the world drain the life out of us. It's not worth it. Again, remember what is true, what is eternally significant. Look to Christ and His glory. Grow in love for Him. Knowing Him, believing those truths that He taught, that's the antidote for love of the world. We've got to fill that desire with something 
and fill it with that which will actually satisfy. Because all that sparkles now will fade and rust, and it will leave a sour taste in our mouths. So may our love for Christ and Christ's love for us lead us to resign all the follies of pursuing the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. Lord, I ask that you would help us to rest in you, rest in the truth of knowing you, and Lord, that you would give us the strength and the resolve in Christ to pursue what is right and good and to not love the world or the things of the world, because the things of the world are are not from God, and they are not good for us. Let us pursue that which is good and makes for upbuilding and growth in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.